Father, this evening, we thank you again for your word. For those who are not feeling well, uh, Dad and now Mama not feeling well as well as uh, Mike and uh, Chris uh, not feeling well, I ask, Lord, that you would touch their bodies. Thank you for those who came this morning and uh, the encouragement to see uh, all of them here and and, uh, Isla Ray back as well and others. And I ask, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts Help us to be a blessing to each one of them as they are to us. And as we go through this class tonight and uh, work to complete this next lesson as we head into uh, or continue into the doctrine of bibliology, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to remember that you gave us your word as a love letter for us to be able to remember that you have left your word with us so that we might not have anything to fear in this world, but that we can look to your word and trust in you and to know that it is the word of God, the infallible, inerrant word of God. So we thank you, Lord, for again, for those who are here this evening. And we pray, Lord, that uh, each heart would be fully encouraged, knowing that we have your word and that we can hide it in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 119 again. We were in Psalm 119 the last time, and I wanted to just point out a few more things to you as we continue. Um, and then we are going to uh, look at finishing uh, the, the truths of uh, this particular uh, uh, chapter that we have been working on. And I didn't actually write everything down here, but this should be uh, the final part of the introduction that we are actually going to go over today, uh, or this evening. So, Psalm 119, somebody read for us verse 89. Forever, Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Okay. Forever, O Lord... Your word is firmly fixed, or as some versions have it, your word is settled in the heavens. I am thankful that we have God's word. I cannot imagine what it must be like, for example, if you were an Old Testament saint, depending on when you were living, where do you go for encouragement? Brother Scott has been talking with me and he's let me borrow a book on Job, poems that were been, have been written about the life of Job. Who, who does Job turn to in times of distress or times of trial? Yes, we turn to the Lord, but now we know, of course, that his word has been given to us and we have everything. We have his completed revelation in the word. But at that point, it's more than likely because Job would have been a... Uh, he would have been uh, considered one of the patriarchs. It's quite possible that he lived about the same time as Abraham. Um, even the law of Moses wouldn't have been written. And so there was nothing, no part of the word of God. There's, there's, there's no scroll available for him to be able to, to go to and pull down off of his shelf, even with all of his wealth, and, and to be able to read, well, Lord, what do you have to say to me? There were many times that the heavens were silent and people prayed and they didn't get an answer. I mean, look at, was it Elijah or Elisha? Uh, I, mean, I mean, he prays and God shuts up the heavens for three and a half years and he's just out there on his own, really. And, and finally, he has uh, a little bit of a pity party, doesn't he? Do you remember what happened? 
uh, in that account and, and, and as he's there he's afraid he's gone out and he's killed the prophets of Baal and, and, and uh, Jezebel says well by this time tomorrow you're going to be just like my prophets are now these, these weren't just false prophets these were the bad dude false prophets I mean these were really bad people if you want to know we're not going to for, the, for, for a, a number of different reasons but we're not going to go over it here in this class um, but go and type into like Google or something right not right now, but type into Google um, what the Baals were or what the Ashtarapoles were. And if you don't know already, you will be shocked. And this is essentially what God's covenant people are actually worshiping on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And they wondered why God kept throwing them into captivity. God was using Midianites and, and the Moabites and the Assyrians and others to be able to bring them back because of the depravity of their heart. I mean, we were talking earlier, somebody was mentioned, I think it was Brother Jeff, he was talking about the, the Aztecs um, and, and the Incas uh, uh, the, and the human sacrifice that they did. I mean, even some of the kings of Israel are actually recorded as throwing their children to the fire. Now, th this, is, this is worse than abortion. These, these are live babies. These are babies who are already living. They probably would have been under the age of about three years old. And they're actually heating up these, these, these gods, these demonic looking beings. And they are heating up the metal that these demons are cast out of on this, on this pedestal. And they're actually throwing their babies into the arms of these glowing hot metal uh, 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 edifices that are there to be able to burn their babies alive. I mean, if you, you can't imagine, none of us can imagine uh, the screams of horror that that must have been. These little children who are, are, have been given as a heritage of the Lord to these parents, and these parents are trying to sacrifice gods that they know don't exist. And You know, it's no different no matter where you go around the world. We saw this kind of stuff. I mean, there, there was still barbarity and vulgarity where we were in Liberia. There was still cannibalism that was taking place over there. There, there are things that, we, that I saw over there when I was in the jungle villages, some, some stuff I can't, still can't talk about. And stuff that, just cre that has just created nightmares for me and for other missionaries for years. And, and to, to think, when you take the law of God and you take it out of the equation and you remove the only firm morality that you have, what do you think happens to society? Okay, uh, more than that, that, that would be a pretty simplistic answer. It's, it's depraved. I mean, we, we look at our culture and we think that our culture is fairly civilized. It, it, what happens when the lights go out at night? What happens when, when people, uh, if, if, you take, if you take, and I know that I have read some crime books in the past, there was a time that I had considered, um, that I had considered going to law school. Violet and I were living in Oklahoma, and we had some people, they were in law school, and he was trying to convince me that's what I should do. But, you know, some, some of the books that I have read have said that those with a criminal mind and the intent that is in their heart some of them said the only thing that stopped them was because they didn't have a better opportunity to do more damage. 
Because given the ability, if you go to a place like Liberia or Nigeria where, where you get away from even the UN and you get away from any police force, the nearest soldier or the nearest police officer that we had to our village where we lived was three hours one direction on a road that took <clears throat> it's 23 miles and it took three hours to get, go that, that distance. There were no helicopters, huh? And they wouldn't even have helped us. And they wouldn't help you anyway. I mean, there are a lot of times that the UN troops would come into a village or, or the, the, the Liberian police force and they would come into a village. They would do whatever they wanted with whoever and nobody ever got in trouble for it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you see. And I don't know how much you got to see how, or how long you were over there in West Africa, but you get away from the capital or the civilized areas of like Monrovia where we were. was We were about an hour from the border of Guinea. And the things that took place there, um, I mean, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. But for them, it, it, was, it was par for the course. That's just the way it was. I mean, I can remember going into villages and the people just nonchalantly telling me what it was like when the rebel soldiers came in and they would just line up the people of the village by tens. First one got raped, the second one got murdered, the third one lost a hand, the fourth one lost a foot. And they would just, and I mean, I'm just appalled. I'm just struggling to be able to understand that. And they're just laughing and continuing on with their day. They've learned to live with this as though it's normal. That's not normal behavior. And the things that we see when we are here in America, the reality is that what we should be appalled at are not the things that we are appalled at anymore. I mean, there, there was a time, for example, that the stuff that is on TV, and we don't have TV for a reason. We've, I mean, we've got a TV, but we're very restrictive and we don't have it connected to like cable or anything like that. If you do and you can control it, that's fine. But the things that are being laughed at and people find funny in a half-hour sitcom compared to what they were laughing at, say, 30 years ago, is completely different. I mean, there were things that my parents would let us watch when I was little and we had a TV. And, I mean, I wouldn't, my parents would not have dreamed of letting me watch that. I would sit there, if I sat with my mom and dad today and we were watching a lot of the shows that are on, I think they would be embarrassed that I'd be sitting there with them watching it. I mean, we talk about, for example, I, I can remember all, some, some of, not all of, I can remember some of all of the uh, carrying on that, that took place. We were in a church at the time, uh, 1973-1974, when the abortion rule was passed. I can remember what people were saying. I can remember the churches calling our church, our pastor calling for a time of prayer. And now we don't think it's anything at, at, at all. It's not a big deal. And yet since 73, in my lifetime, we've, our country has murdered almost 70 million babies. Are we really any different than, than, than those who are offering the sacrifices to Molech? So there's a reason why we take the Word of God. There's a reason why, why groups, for example, like Wycliffe Bible Translators and, and other groups who are out there translating the Word of God, there's a reason why they do that because they understand. I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but to be like with Wycliffe Bible Translators, you not only have to be able to know English 
to a high level, you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. You also have to know Greek and Hebrew at a seminary level. And you have to be able to be in and have lived are living in amongst the people that you are working with on their tribal language for a minimum of seven years. Now, imagine with me that you go in and let's say that, 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 that we were all going to get up today and we were all going to go as a team and we were going to go find some unreached people group. And think about all of the depravity and all the vulgarity and all of the stuff that was taking place in, in that country. And yet, you would be able to tell them, sit down and talk with the chief as I did under those great big tall 125, 150 foot, I don't know if you remember those great big massive trees that they have in West Africa. And go and sit down underneath one of those trees with the elders of the village and say, well, God's word says, and they look at you like you've lost your mind. What is this God's word? We don't even have an alphabet in our language. How do you show them? At that point, when you're starting to tell them, all you're telling them is what you know, your sense of morality. Now, I realize the Holy Spirit does his work, and that's what we are required to do, is to be able to share the gospel, the good news. But you can go and, and, and read the writings of any anthropologist, and you can go even to Stone Age existence tribal groups today and you will still find that there are vestiges of morality even in those cultures you will find that they have rules i was watching a documentary about a week week and a half ago and it was on papua new guinea in 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 the region of papua new guinea i can't remember how many there are there's something like 800 different tribal groups and languages just in the papua new guinea area between there the Marshall Islands, the Samoan Islands, um, and, and yet for all of the things that took place in, in those countries, every one of them still knew, especially the headhunters, knew that it was wrong. They didn't know why, but they knew that it was wrong to not only kill somebody, but to eat them. Who tells them those things? Very simple. Ecclesiastes says, God has written eternity on the hearts of men and women. And people know because their conscience speaks to them. This one guy was speaking with one of the tribal people who had actually, in, in years past, they don't do it now, but he was asking them, well, what does it actually taste like? Because this guy said that he had actually cannibalized one of his enemies. And he told him, he says, well, it tastes like sweet pig meat. And he said, well, why would you do it? He said, I don't know. We just did because everybody else did. That's not a good reason for doing the things that we're doing. And yet, think about this going all the way further back. Think about Cain and Abel. What must that conversation have been like when Cain walked in after just killing Abel? What do you say to your mom and dad? I mean, there's hardly anybody for as long. You can walk for miles. You can walk for days and weeks and months in any direction. There's hardly anybody else in the entire world. The number of people can be counted probably on one on two hands at that point in the entire world. And the world just got a tenth of its population or a fourth of its population wiped out because you got angry. And we look and we see all of the depravity, we see all the laws that are being broken, and the reality is that we 
as even as believers, if there there are things that I believe that we as Christians we can do the same kind of crimes, the same kind of things in a moment of of passion or or being angry or whatever that anybody else in the world can do who is an unbeliever. The difference is that we have the Holy Spirit who abides within us to be able to direct our lives so that we don't do those things that the world does. But again, it's not because we don't necessarily have opportunity. It's because we now, as a new believer, as a new creation in Christ Jesus, we don't have a desire to do those kind of things. So this is the reason for the scriptures. This is why, again, like I mentioned last week or or a couple weeks ago when we had our last class in Psalm 119, you have 22, uh, 22 sections here, 176 verses, and every one of them pertaining in some way or another to the Word of God. Again, there's at least... 10 or 12 different references here in this one chapter alone to the word of God, the statutes of the Lord, the law of God, the commandments of God, the testimony of the Lord. So that would be Psalm 119, and I would encourage you, that's another verse that I would encourage you to, to, to not just to highlight in your Bible, but I would encourage you to memorize that particular verse, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, in the heavens. I can remember when I was a kid and we were, we had uh, some of the first memory verses that I think a lot of Sunday school kids uh, memorize, of course, are Psalm 119, 111, for example. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Are the testimonies of God really our joy? Listen to Psalm 119, 105. This was another one. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In verse 106, he uses another term and he says, they are my righteous rules. Listen, the law of God is not meant to be grievous for us. It is meant to be a guide. It is meant to be a protection for us. And I have shared this with my own kids as they were growing up, the girls, and then uh, sharing them with the boys earlier. And I remember hearing this when I was a kid growing up as well, that the rules that are there, they are put there for a reason, and that's to be able to protect us. It's like a hedge of thorns so that we don't walk off the cliff on the other side. The problem is that we like kicking against the hedge of thorns. We think that if we can just move it out of the way, it'll give us all the freedom to be able to do whatever we want to. And yet we get through that hedge of thorns and we find out that there's a precipice that goes into the abyss. And what ends up happening? We walk off that abyss. And too often, it could be our kids, it could be us, maybe you in a, in, in a, in a previous part of your life, you have walked off of those edges because you didn't have God's word or maybe in a in a time when you were not given biblical counsel you walked in a way that was contrary to the law of God and yet now what do we do we turn around and and we are called to walk in the ways of God we are called to as Psalm 119:9 says wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to your word this is the way we walk uprightly 
This is why I've shared with you that in counseling sessions, for example, I really don't care what's going on at home between one party or the other. We're never going to take care of the problem. If, 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 if you as a husband are struggling with picking up your socks off the floor and this is something that really irritates your wife, the only thing that you're actually going to find, if all we do is deal with that issue, it's going to be another issue after that. And then another issue after that. And one day, you'll come like other couples have come, and they'll, you'll sit in front of me, and we'll go through the biblical counseling or seek to go through biblical counseling, and there's going to be one of two solutions. You're going to say, well, we're just not compatible anymore. Or you're going to say, how do I change? How do I change? I'm not worried about the person that's sitting across the desk from me. I'm not worried about my spouse. I'm worried about how God sees me. And that's the reason for this doctrinal class because if you are more worried and more concerned about how God sees you and how God is changing you, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God take care of the other person in your marriage or in your life or in your workplace or your kids or your grandkids or your parents or whoever it may be. So we concluded in our last lesson, and we're going to be starting with Roman numeral number 9. And that is, what is the relationship of systematic theology to doctrine? And we're probably going to have time for some questions um, towards the end of this session. But I want to try to get through this part here so that we can then go on to the next one, uh, which is the introduction, the prolegomenon, starting in page 50, uh, Lord willing, in our next class. So what is the relationship of systematic theology to doctrine? And the question was, what is doctrine? Who has an answer for me? Sterling? I just wrote uh, teaching that is considered authoritative. Okay. So it is the teaching of Scripture, whether it be proclamational, expositional, or categorical. Now, all of you have been around and you have probably listened to people online, for example, and you will find all three of these types of messages found within Scripture. Hi, Debbie, come on in. You will find all three of these. Now, the categorical one would be similar to what we would know as a topical type message. For example, if we were to do a study in the life of the disciples, we're not actually going to go verse by verse through a particular passage to look necessarily at the life of James or Alphaeus or, or Thaddeus or whoever it may be. We're going to take selected scriptures. So this would be a categorical message that we are looking at. Now what we're going to be doing, in, or what we have started out in the Sermon on the Mount, this is actually a mix between proclamational, in other words, we are proclaiming the word of God and there are demands that God's word places on us. So for example, when we start dealing with the areas of lust or anger or, or you have heard it said that you should not do this and everybody's patting themselves on their back and thinking, yes, that's good because I've never done that. And then Jesus says, wait a minute. You actually have done these things if you have hated or looked with lust or whatever. And again, in Matthew chapter 6, we looked at it just briefly this morning. 
the Lord Jesus Christ himself says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I tell you to do? This would be proclamational. We are making a proclamation, a gospel message, for example, uh, that, that, that is, if I were have to have the opportunity to, to go and preach in any other church in Cheyenne, it doesn't matter what church it is, I would proclaim the gospel in that message. I'm not there to preach an expositional message. I'm there to proclaim this is what God's word has to say. And if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, you are on your way to hell. If I only get one opportunity, I'm not going to blow it. Just like at a funeral. Expositional though. Expositional, this is a verse by verse declaration of what scripture says opening up the scripture and saying, this is what this word means. This is how we apply it into our lives. Now, there are times, if you remember when we were listening at the very beginning of Steve Lawson's introduction, he was talking, uh, he was talking about, um, or actually it was in The Men Who Rock the World. He, he did a series on, um, oh, John 17. He talks about doing a series, an expositional series on John 17. And there's something like 28 or 29 verses, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Um, and he was actually in John 17, I think he said, for a year and a half. That's expositional ministry of the word. That is breaking down the scriptures so that we can understand it. I believe that God's word is knowable. We can understand. Now, it may take a lot of digging. It may take a lot of effort. It may take a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of study to be able to come to the point where we understand what God's word has to say. But I believe that it is knowable. How is all doctrine generally classified into one of two categories? Did you catch what that one was? For example, regarding the origin of the earth, we saw... From God the Creator or from God's creation. Truth content is either true or false. Again, go into, go into a modern college or a modern university and truth is whatever you choose to make of it. And yet, that doesn't hold any water. For example, somebody comes up and says, hey, I don't like you. Well, I don't like you either. Well, I don't like what you're teaching. That's fine. In my truth, my truth system says I can just kill you if you don't like my teaching. And find out if they're willing to agree that all truth is relative. It's not. <clears throat> Regarding human source, it's either biblical or unbiblical. Regarding the quality, it's either sound or unsound. Regarding acceptability, it's either familiar or strange. I shared this with you yesterday in the class, for those of you who were here. The more you read God's word, the more you'll understand it. The more you read God's word, the more you'll truly know what God has to say about himself and about you. I've used this illustration before. If when my wife and I were courting, if she wrote me letters and I never read them, 
and yet she poured her heart out and she told me all about her and all about her job and all about these things and and we got together finally on a date three or four weeks later and I drove up to where she was living on at REF Chicksands and we sat down and we we're at the bowling alley or whatever there weren't too many places at REF Chicksands that you could go to and so we're sitting at the bowling alley there on base and she says well I told you about that in my letter well I didn't read it well why didn't you read it well you know I, I didn't really have time and and you know the, the TV program I was wanting to watch that was more important back then I mean who went who wanted to miss Knight Rider I mean seriously okay if you guys don't know who Knight Rider is you no, don't go no, don't go do that seriously but she writes these things because she wants me to know more about her right and so I write in return. I say, well, that's interesting. I didn't know you grew up there. Come to find out, we actually grew up almost at the same time in Mississippi. Our folks moved to Tennessee after my dad got out of the military. And come to find out, she moved from Mississippi into Tennessee as well. We were within a few hundred, we were within a couple of hours drive of each other for years and didn't know it. She never looked me up or called me once. I'm telling you. <laughs> what? Yeah, but I'm younger. I, you know, submitting to my elders and all that. I know. Counseling starts tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock. <laughs> Regarding retention, to hold or not to hold. Now, this one is important. They're all important. But there are a lot of things that we can get caught up in in this world. And you have to make a determination. I think somebody made the comment yesterday that there was only so much gray matter up in their head. There's only so many things that you can retain at any one point. And, and if you have gone and you have any kind of uh, degree work or high school work, how much of that do you actually remember? Or would you have to brush up on maybe a few areas if you had to go take an exam today? A lot of areas because we don't recall everything. In fact, you can get a degree in accounting or in nursing or, or whatever it is that you're doing and you're not necessarily going to remember everything that's in the manual. Some of it, it's just you don't know how to put it down on paper. You just know how to do it because you've been doing it for years. And the same is true of the Word of God. Do we hold on to these things or do we not hold on to these things? I know the kind of church that some of you guys grew up in, just like I did. And I'm not here to badmouth these churches, but I can tell you that there's a reason why we struggled in our marriage, why we struggled in, in being good parents and learning how to be good parents with our kids a lot of times, because the things that we were being told was how to brush up the external issues of our life. How to look good on the outside, but nobody ever sat us down and said, hey, wait a minute, the real problem is what's in your heart. And so we can do all of the right things. We can follow all the right rules. We can. We were. We went to one church, and we were interested in joining the church years ago. We were down in um, Texas, I think, at the point, and we walked in, and they said, "Well, what's the requirement to be able to join this church?" No constitution, no doctrinal statement. They gave us a list. It was like thirty or thirty-two pages of rules that you had to be willing to obey in order to be a part of this church. Your hair had to be so far off your ears if you were a man. You couldn't wear wire room glasses. You had to wear a shirt and tie and coat and all of that stuff. I mean, it was a long list of rules. It was the last time we ever went there. 
But you know what they're doing? They're polishing up the outside of the tomb and they're making people look good on a Sunday. But it's not changing the heart. I don't care what a person looks like on the outside if they are coming to service and they are learning to be like Jesus Christ. And I, I want to say, I've, I've talked and I've talked with one gentleman here and I was telling him, he was asking some questions. And, and, and I'll say here in front of everybody, uh, I would that you would start right where you're at right now and begin to ask questions. I wish that I would have had the ability, I wish I would have been afforded the opportunity to be able to ask questions when I was in my 20s or in my early 30s in some of the churches that we were at. A lot of times, more times than not, we were actually shut down. The pastor didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to listen. He didn't want to be questioned, his authority. The only authority that I have as a pastor is what is in the Word of God, and it is the authority of God. It is not my personal authority. Regarding benefit, <coughs> is it good or is it bad? Is this profitable for me? This is the next one. Regarding value, is this profitable or is this unprofitable? As we, as we shared with you, I believe it was the last time, and we wrote this yesterday, just two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. This is the value that you have to place on everything. Am I pleasing God or am I pleasing myself? There, there's no other choice. For example, if, if your kids are not getting along with each other and I had that and that was mine first, I'm going to tell mom. How about sitting them down and saying, hey, wait a minute. Are you pleasing God with your choices and your words and your actions or are you pleasing yourself? Learn to teach them early. You know, my wife has the privilege of being able to teach our grandson, and she teaches him five days a week over, over the internet. She doesn't drive down to Texas every morning. And she, and she teaches him on the internet. And you know what? Even as our grandson, there are things that she has a responsibility and a right to do, and to be able to tell him, hey, wait a minute, what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're acting is not pleasing to God. You're pleasing yourself right now. And you know how we can tell the difference between whether we're pleasing God and pleasing self? Is this a benefit to somebody else in my life? We were told years ago, and I mentioned this in yesterday's class, Dr. Jim Berg, and one of the things that he mentioned in one of the sessions that we were at in this retreat, 1996 or 97, somewhere in there, he says you can tell the difference between somebody who is mature or somebody who is immature, he said selfish or not selfish, when you come into a room, do you bring more chaos or do you bring more order? You can use that with your kids or your grandkids. Feel free to write down. Am I bringing more order or am I bringing more chaos into this situation? Now, I want to encourage us because there, there are times when, for example, and, and he really caught me short on this one in the session that he was doing. And he said, listen, uh, you know, we, 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 he was in a counseling situation and, and he was talking with the mother about her, her son who was like 15 or 16 years old. And she said, well, he's just immature. And he said, no, listen, lady, in Christian love, let me tell you the truth. Immaturity is what a little boy or a little girl does in their pants where they're two years old and they haven't been potty trained. That's immaturity. He said, what we're talking about is selfishness. 
your son at 15 or 16 hasn't learned what the word no means yet. Now, I, I've, go, I've gone into, into the stores. I hate going to Walmart. It's one of the reasons why I hate going shopping. Go into Walmart and hear little kids who are two or three years old screaming and hollering and smacking mom and dad until they get what, they're, until they, get what they want. You know, today it's a candy bar. Tomorrow it's an Xbox. And what is it going to be the week after that? When they're 15 or 16 or 20 or 25 and they've never learned what the word no means. How does sound biblical doctrine apply to the church? Several areas, and we're actually going to break some of this down when we actually get into bibliology and then ecclesiology, so I don't want to spend a great deal of time here on this aspect. But number one, it exposes and confronts sin and false doctrine. You want to know where a church stands? You want to know everything about who they are, what they believe, where that pastor comes from? Go and sit and listen to one of the messages and find out what he actually talks about. I've had people tell me they went to churches and the pastor never opened the Bible one time. That'll tell you a lot about church. If his church, if if his sermons are full of in my opinion or I think or anything similar to that, and it's not thus says the word of God, get up, get your family, and run. started perpetrating, I've heard in the last 10 years or so, about um, in false doctrine of how the um, Secret Service learns about counterfeit money. Mm-hmm. It's all they do is they study the real bill. Yep. And once they understand the real bill, then they always understand that. That is a canard. That is an absolute falsehood. The Secret Service studies everything false. It's the exact opposite. So they can see what the differences are. They have a comparative, but they look to see where they can find what's wrong. And that is the, that's the lie. So that lie has been perpetrated. And so we get into now new churches, and they're like, well, if I just preach the church, then my congregation will always know what a lie is. No, because it's deception. Yep. And it's sneaky. And it sounds really close. Without that study of what is false and what is wrong, and pointing those things out, we are in grave danger, not only of our family, but as a church, the, the big church yep. in general. And, and, and that's why when we talk about ecclesiology, for example, you're going to have a handout on what, the, on what the false cults believe. You're going to understand the reason why we can't fellowship with these people. Now, this is a good point to actually bring up here because there is a term that is found in a number of churches... And this here is the reason, secondary separation. Secondary separation says that I will not fellowship with you if you don't believe just like me. Now, it would be, it would be false for us to assume that there is no other church, hear me carefully, that there is no other church, there are actually what we would call tears T-I-E-R-S, of biblical doctrine. Within this first doctrine, level of doctrine, 
you're going to have things like the ten major doctrines or the fundamentals of the faith that we are talking about here. For example, if you don't believe in the Trinity, we can't fellowship. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, we can't fellowship. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, we have no fellowship. If you don't believe that the Bible is God's word, equals God's word, we can have no fellowship. So if I were to give you a list of groups, for example, let's take, say, the LDS. Do they fit within this circle right here? That means no fellowship. But then you have what's called secondary separation, and there's a circle that's kind of like this right here. And within this circle, this becomes the primary circle for a lot of churches. For example, KJV. If you don't use the KJV, you can't join that church. There's at least seven churches here in Cheyenne right now that are like that. Seven Baptist churches. If you're not King James only, you can't join their church. And if you do join their church, you'll never be allowed to teach or sing or be in the choir, or play the piano, or whatever it may be. This is called secondary separation. Now there are other issues, for example, that we can agree to disagree on. For example, here is one, and there's actually now a third circle that we're going to have in here. We're going to get back to this one in just a moment. And you have ones like baptism. The ones in this circle right here these would be called non-salvific issues. Non-salvific simply means does not pertain to salvation. Baptism is not bringing us to salvation, right? So for example, how many of you know R.C. Sproul or of R.C. Sproul? Okay. R.C. Sproul was a Presbyterian minister. R.C. Sproul's church actually sprinkled babies. Now, we're not getting into covenant theology and all of that right now. That'll come later on in our doctrinal class. John MacArthur, on the other hand, was a Baptistic doctrine preacher, and they baptized by full immersion believers only. Do you know that R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur were actually great friends for over 50 years? Preached in each other's pulpits. Because this, to them, was a non-salvific issue. There are churches that I have preached in that actually did hold to a KJV-only position. In that case, what do I do? I preached from the authorized version while I was in their church. But then within that group, there were some who would come and they would say, I, I can tell you that as a missionary, when we were raising our support, we were going around on deputation doing itinerant work, uh, I used to have a file of the, the surveys or the, the, the questionnaires that were sent out to me from other churches. I had some churches that wanted to know what my kids and what my wife wore to bed at night. I'm sorry, that's none of your business. But the reason they asked was because if my wife or my girls wore pajamas, pants, pajamas, they were sinning against God per their teaching. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, this, you see, because when this is not the number one issue in your church or the one, number one concern, 
then other things become the number one concern. But isn't that where the Pharisees started? That's exactly right. Now, there's nothing wrong with holding to these positions, but these positions cannot be what drives your church. For example, uh, if, if I would preach in... Anybody know Bob Jones University? Okay, Pensacola Christian College? Anybody know that one? Liberty University. There were some churches that if I had preached in the church where the pastor went to Bob Jones University, I went across town to preach in the other church, and he was a graduate of Liberty University, they wouldn't let me in to preach. That's a secondary, that's actually a third level issue. This would be called primary or first level. This would be secondary. In other words, I can still fellowship with people. We can still go out and have coffee. I can still allow somebody to come and minister the gospel here or to be able to share the truth. For example, some of our missionaries don't hold exactly like we do on some of these issues and some of these issues. But we still support them. But if this is what's driving you, then you're not going to care what some of these other areas are and it's going to change the way that your church sees you and the way that your church sees other churches. You know, one of the sad things about Cheyenne for over 30 years now, most of the churches that are evangelical Baptist churches do not fellowship with one another. It's, it's one of the issues that has been here in Cheyenne for years. You know why? Because the first thing most of those pastors, I had a pastor from one of the churches here, one of the Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches, who called me up and they wanted one of their missionaries to be able to come and present their ministry. I said, hey, that's wonderful. Went on, told me about their ministry, and I was excited. I thought this is wonderful. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this guy's never going to come here. And I said, well, before you come, there's a couple of things you need to know. Number one, I preach from the ESV. I'm not King James only. I said, and I hold to the doctrines of grace. And he said, we're not interested anymore, and hung up on me. It's a local Baptist church. A pastor at a local Baptist church. That's a shame. So how does sound biblical doctrine apply to the church? Number two, it marks a good servant of Jesus Christ. Number three, it's rewarded with double honor for their elders. Number four, it conforms to godliness. It gives us an apostolic example to follow. It is essential to equipping pastors. It is a continual mandate for preachers and teachers. It is a basic qualification for eldership. I want to give you another illustration and sometimes because of the 30 years that I've been in ministry I don't have all the answers but I know where to go to get them. I can tell you that some of the illustrations that I share with you have been heartbreaking to watch. When we first went to Liberia there were seven or eight missionary couples who were there. They had almost 40 years of experience. They all said in their letters going back home that they were church planting in Liberia, the northern part of Liberia. These were just the missionaries. These were all Baptist missionaries, and they were all in our area, the little area that we were at, based out of a village of or a town of 35,000 people. So I began asking questions when we moved there and said, well, 
Well, where are the churches that you've actually planted? And between them, this is the amount of time that these eight missionary couples had actually been in the country, and between them, they didn't have one single church started in 40 years on the field. But they were all church planners. I said, why? I said, you're, you're taking a large amount of money. The average support for a missionary in Liberia at the time was anywhere between six dollars and $7,000 a month. That included ministry expense. That's a lot of money. And so these missionaries were taking this support month after month. They were living behind fences. Some of them had barbed wire around the front. They had guards. They had, they had, you couldn't get in without an appointment. And these were people who were going, or they were supposed to be working amongst the people. And I asked them, why aren't you starting churches? This is what you said you came here to do. And they said, we can't come to a consensus as to where the churches should be started. And our mission director won't give us authorization to go anywhere. I said, so you've been sitting here between the lot of you for almost 40 years and can't figure out which village needs a church yet? 40 years. And the reason that I was there was because some of them called me to come and visit them. And, and they said, well, how are you doing this? Within the first six months, within the first three months, we had found two villages and established a church in both villages. <clears throat> they said, how are you doing this? And they asked me and they called and I wasn't even part of their organization. I said, because I came over here with a job to do and this is what God has called me to do, so I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to let anybody get in my way. There are now multiple churches all over that area because those people finally realized that they needed to do what God told them to do. Now there's churches all over northern Liberia. That's a wonderful testimony that God used me in that little tiny way to, to be able to get these people to stop sitting there doing nothing. You could go to one of the local Baptist churches there that was actually in the town of Bonga where we were at and you would have four or five of these missionary couples and all of their families sitting in the pews of that one church doing nothing. When we went out, I took the men with me. I took men who had given a profession of faith, who knew the Savior, and we got there, and with the very first Sunday in both villages, I told the people, they all gathered around, we had 40-something people at the very first village that we stopped at, and we talked with the elders, and we got approval to sit in this little village and to be able to establish a church, and I told them, I said, from next Sunday, I want you to understand that this man is going to be the pastor of this church one day in this village. Because I wasn't going to be the pastor. I was just the missionary. I was just there to teach. I look around and I see, like my guys, I see Ryan and Katie and I see Sam and Alicia. This is the next generation. And they're either going to perpetuate a lie or they're going to perpetuate shallowness or they're going to perpetuate truth. They're going to perpetuate the deep doctrines of God. What is the danger of the absence of sound biblical teaching? Where there is false belief, there will always be sinful behavior. Therefore, we must not run into the danger of straying or absenting teaching from doctrine. I told you yesterday, for those of you who are here, who are here we were talking about application. 
If all I teach you is facts on a piece of paper, but I don't teach you how to apply it, I have failed in my job as a pastor. With false belief, there will be sinful behavior because, for example, in the, in the example of that one woman who came for counseling and she was allowing her son to run wild, I, I understand. That doesn't mean that we're better than that woman because her 15-year-old was smoking or doing pot or doing all of those kind of things. No, that's not the point. The point is, if you're following the Word of God and you know how to give an answer to every person who asks you, that includes the people in your home, a reason for why you believe what you believe, you should be able to stand up and say, no, these are the rules. This is what we believe. This is how our house is going to be. Joshua twenty four fifteen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you don't want to serve the Lord, you're going to have to leave. You see, and that requires pain. Sometimes that requires us to make hard decisions that we don't want to make in this day and age. Why will there always be opposition to sound doctrine? Very simple, the heart is totally depraved. It's apart from Christ, and it hates all that is associated with it, with whatever is holy. And secondly, because Satan and his demons do not want man to know fellowship with God. Listen, you may have all the desires in the world, and you may have all the good intentions of reading through your Bible this year, or next year, whatever it may be. And I guarantee you can set yourself a plan, and you can build your mind up, and you can say, I'm going to do this and come January 1st, and you're going to wake up on January 1st, and you're going to have slept through your alarm. Or one of the kids are going to come and say, Dad, why is the front tire on the car flat? Or the wife's going to burn the toast. Or the husband's going to burn the oatmeal. Or whatever's going to happen. You know why? Because the evil one puts those things in our path because he wants to keep you from God's word. It will happen. Guarantee it. We have lived it. We have been there. Are there any wrong ideas in the church about the relationship, letter F, about the relationship between what a person believes and how they live? Again, we could park here for, for weeks. But there are eight points here. Number one, right doctrine automatically leads to godliness. No, it does not. I told you a couple of weeks ago about a man who is now on the internet and uh, he was actually pretty heavily involved in the evangelical world. And about a year ago, he abandoned evangelicalism and went and joined the LDS church. He has all the answers, and now he's spending his time on the internet, on YouTube, trying to overturn in people's minds and asking the question, did God really say that? Yes. Oh, that would be tough. I, I think we, we, we have to be careful that we don't judge the heart of man. We can judge the fruit of a person because the Bible says, John 15, we can be a fruit inspector. But I, I don't want to say that this, I don't want to say that this person was or was not a believer because ultimately I don't know. 
but I can tell you that according to God's word, if you can walk away and you can openly embrace the heresy that doesn't fall within in, within here, the Bible is very clear. First John, you are not a believer. Never were. Never were. Yep. But again, you can have uh, look look at the Catholic Church. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be rude or mean to 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 Catholics. I can tell you that there are. I believe that there are people who are in Roman Catholicism who have been saved, but they can't be and remain as a mature Christian. You cannot remain in the false system of belief. I, I, I've, I've read enough of the... I, I've read through the Book of Mormon, and I can tell you 65% of it comes directly out of the Authorized Version. I can show you verses that are just almost word for word right out of our Bible. I could show you the Gospel out of the Book of Mormon, but the Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. Secondly, it doesn't matter how you live as long as you have right doctrine. Again, my dad has told me down through the years, your position can be right, but if your disposition is wrong, your, your position is also wrong. In other words, you can have all the right answers, you can have the right doctrine, but if your life is not changing, of what good is it? Doctrine deadens, spiritually speaking. These are, again, these are wrong ideas that we can find within churches. Uh, you know, there are, uh, there are many, if you've ever gone over to England or g get a chance to visit England and go into some of those little uh, Baptist or Bible churches that are scattered all over little tiny chapels way out on a village lane and you go in there and they all sit there and they've got these long faces and all of the songs sound like funeral dirges and, and the pastor sits up there and, and he says, Dear God. You know, there's no life there. The Word of God brings life and it brings change. You know, for years, for almost 30 years of ministry, we have been in several different churches and this is all I wanted was what we have right here. Week after week, people that were willing to come and hear the Word of God. And it's at this time of life that for whatever reason, God has chosen to give us that and I'm thankful. But I can also tell you all the horror stories. I can tell you what it's like to sit down at a table full of elders and every one of them tell you, we've never even read the Word of God. We can tell you that if... I had two of them tell me, and some of you know this account, I had two of them sit right across from me and one of them reached over and thumped my Bible with his finger and he said, if what you tell me is true from that Word, he says, I'd rather God just send me to hell so I can have a party with all of my friends. This is a man who is supposed to be a spiritual leader in his church. Another wrong idea is there's no connection between what you believe and how you be and how you live. What you believe should dictate how you live. In every level, whether it's work, whether it's home, whether it's driving down the road, it doesn't matter where it is or what it is you're doing. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Next time you pick up whatever it is or you turn on the TV or, you, or you're driving down the road and you want to go 15 over in, a, in a, whatever zone it is that you're at, ask yourself this, am I doing this to the glory of God? That'll catch you up short. 
Christianity is life. It is not doctrine. Yeah? This is where you end up with things like promise keepers. This is where you end up with all of the fads that are found in, the, in, in Christianity today. It's all about bumper stickers and coffee cups with cute little sayings on them that don't change your life. I'm not saying that those things didn't produce anything good, but if those things were a work of God and there was a true revival that was actually taking place in our world today, then let me ask you something. Why are the statistics the same in churches as they are out in the world? told you folks before having been in the funeral industry and did over 1200 or almost 1200 funerals myself not including the staff that I had working for me I can remember just about every kid I ever picked up out of 1200 cases I can remember what it's like to go and help cut a, bo a body's the body down of a young boy who was only 12 years old committed suicide the boy was in church one of the biggest churches in Carson City, supposed to be evangelical. Man, they had the music and the light show, and they had everything. But no doctrine. I think a lot of that is there's no follow-up and no accountability. There's no discipleship to, to go with it. Well, I, I think, I mean, it would take a while to, to parse this out, but I think it's a bigger problem than just no discipleship. You can't you can't follow on from discipleship if there was no biblical doctrine to begin with. For example, let's take promise keepers. If you do you know that within promise keepers, the PK circle, you could go to a, have a stadium, Denver Broncos Stadium, fifty thousand, and you would have Catholics, you would have LDS, you would have Baptist, you would have even some JWs. Believe it or not. And there were others, and they're all singing, they're all holding hands together, singing and, and, and having a great time and an emotional high and saying, oh, we're all brothers in Christ, let's break the barriers down. <clears throat> you break the barriers down, you don't have biblical Christianity anymore. I'm sorry, but that's just what the Bible says. I get, I get that portion of it, but it's the portion of when there's men from a church that go there, and then they come back. And that spiritual high is gone because there's no follow-up or accountability of what you learned at the event. Okay? Sure. And, and that's where, where I think the whole, the whole problem is, you know, you have these, these big things, you know, Billy Graham's crusades or, you know, Promise Keepers or, or whatever there is, you know, the conventions and whatnot. But if you just go there, soak it in, and then go back and live your life, then what was the purpose of going? You know, if, if you're going to actually take scripture and take the lessons and take uh, the word and then have something to follow up on, then that's where you can grow. I'm going to go one more step beyond that, brother. And I, and I mean this in love to, to everybody here. Why would I send anybody from my church to go hear poison? 
or to go ingest poison to begin with. That's the problem that I find with a lot of these fads that are out there. I, I don't doubt that, that, that people have, have learned some things from promise keepers, but shame on the pastors who sent their men to go there in the first place. <clears throat> because those ministers that went, those ministers who are standing on the pulpit, they have to water down their message. They can't stand up and say the things that I said this morning in a Sunday morning message because it would run off 49,000 of the 50,000 people who were there at the, at the meeting. And again, we can, we can learn from those things, but what would the difference be if I said, well, you know, I tell you what, we're going to take Ryan and, and Trenton and Sterling and all the men here, we're going to take, you know, we've got a great gathering here, and so we're going to send you guys all out to the next annual convention of the Mormon Church out in Salt Lake City, and we're all going to send you to the tabernacle. The gospel watered down isn't the gospel at all. Thank you. That's my point. The gospel watered down is not the gospel anymore. And, and I, I can't be holding hands, so, so they come back, and, and what do we do? We allow these men to stand up in the congregation, and they say, oh, it was a wonderful time, and they get all emotional, and they all get, they all get worked up, and they say, you know, we have, and I say, wait a minute, were you holding hands with any of these people here? Do you know they don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? How can you call them a brother? Yeah, but I know what I felt. It is deceiving. It's full deception because, I mean, do you remember even, even, even the Apostle Paul in Galatians, he writes a letter to Galatia, the church at Galatia, and he doesn't say hold hands with the Judaizers and hopefully you'll get something out of the convention. He says, I would wish that they would emasculate themselves. He's that serious about somebody who has gone far away from the truth of the gospel. And, and, and I, know that, I know that that could be very hard for some of you to be able to hear maybe because that's, that's been acceptable in a lot of churches. And we're not trying to get to the point where we're lone rangers, where we're be the only ones. But remember this, there were several million people who were in Israel and God told Elijah out of that group there were only 7,000 who had not bowed the knee. Wow. I would rather be in the group of the 7,000 than the 7 million who are having a great time. Here's another one to move it off of one that's so emotional. I'm going to get, I see your hand, brother. What would Jesus do or the prayer of Jabez? You know what? I went out because I bought that book because we had a pastor that told us it was the best thing since sliced bread and it would change our lives. And you know what I realized later? My pastor had lied to me because it wasn't the best thing. It was a prayer that was given by Jabez and it had nothing to do with me or the church. But you know what? I got all hyped up about it. We had the coffee cup. We had the t-shirt. We went through the book. And you know what? It did nothing to help me to become a godly man and a godly husband and a godly father to my family. Scott? Uh, we, we touched about this a little bit on Thursday night. I, I recognize this, but one of the things that I think that when we look at, at something like this, and going even back to a couple questions earlier is, uh, from last week, the last time we were together, is that doctrine is that absolute building block to theology. Yeah. Theology, if it just attack it as I'm going to you know, create theology, without that doctrine, it actually becomes very, very difficult because then you don't have a good... Uh, a good foundation. And I think that's what happens with these groups. 
or the fast or whatever is you have a theological bend or you have a theological like your your yeah. tier that you have there and they want to build off of that because it is emotional yeah and it um it does it is attractive i mean i've gone to the pk meetings and they were um you know the ones i got to go to the very very first ones where they were, you know, they were pretty, they were pretty wrapped up with Bill McCartney being the, the head leader. He was really strong in those things. But one of the things that became problematic with the with the Promise Keepers was their doctrinal statement. Their doctrinal statement, when challenged, became brittle, and yeah. that because of that, they were just theological. And in that theology, that's where all those others could could creep in because they could say they were very close closely related theologically because it was socially acceptable it's ecumenical but with with good doctrine you build everything up off of that yeah we are going to come to the end of this book and you and i are going to disagree on things sure because our doctrinal but our doctrinal statements in the number one is absolutely i have no hesitation that says we're going to be right on yep on the tertiary or secondary issues i would say that there's going to be some room Sure. Some conversation, but I think those conversations can be held doctrinally. Yes. That's where then it's very easy to become relational, and we can have discourse based on on a commonality that says that. And that's so you get back to you know the the seven thousand versus the seven million. Those seven thousand were stronger. Yep. Because that, you know, and I hate that. That idea that, that there are other churches in this town that aren't doing that, but I recognize that there are. Sure. And in that too is it hurts. But when you have those conversations, we ran into someone yesterday and had a good conversation. But I know where he stood doctrinally. It was the application of that doctrine yeah. that I wish I could just drag him by the hand a little bit further. But that's not where he's at right now. But I know doctrinally where he stood, and I think that's where we become as a church. I don't. Kn I don't buy into the fact there was only 60 people in this church this morning. It felt like there was a lot more. I know my feelings betray me, yep. but when I look at that, I looked at strength. Yep. I felt strength in the singing. I felt strength in listening to you. I looked around. I, I was recognizing it helps that I'm here a little bit more. I'm recognizing people, yep. and, and that's helpful, but that's strength. Yep. And, and, and that, is, that is the wonder of biblical doctrine. Listen, if, if, if we are teaching sound biblical doctrine, you don't need the outside influences of all of these things that are hyped up to be something that they're not. And again, I mean, I know several of you have been to some of those meetings. I, I've been to those kind of meetings in the past as well. You know what the difference was? It was going to a church in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was going to a church where a pastor, week after week, stood up and said, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1 through 6, a year and a half later. That's what changed our lives. And that's what will change your life as well. That's why doctrine is so important. How many of you have heard of, and I'm going to close with this, I didn't realize it was almost 20 after 7. I don't know where the time went. But... Let me conclude with this illustration. How many of you have ever heard of the Toronto Blessing or the Lakeland Revival? Do you know what one of the number one songs was for the Lakeland Revival? Now, you older people here, you're going to know this song probably if you ever listen to rock and roll. 
It was, you spin me right round. Seriously. And you know what? They put a few Jesus words in it. You spin me right round Jesus like a record player, Jesus, right round. And this became a 10-minute song that was being played at these revival meetings. And it was getting kids hyped up. They were getting people. You can still find the videos online. They were telling kids, you're standing on holy ground. Take your socks off. Swing them around in the air. Your chain, your chains, your keys, whatever it is. And you know what? They were just eating it up because of no doctrine. And you know what? I bet you can't find any if or most if not any of them even in churches today sitting here in Bible classes or in doctrinal classes saying Lord how can I become more like you Sam Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at the this recent Asbury revival that supposedly took place. The one that was scheduled. The one that was scheduled. Yeah. When revival comes, you won't be worried about anybody else. You'll be worried about your relationship between you and a holy God. And you know what's interesting? Even the college stated. This has nothing to do with doctrine. They have them every 30 or 40 years, so if you miss this one, you can catch the next one. And your general re recognition of that, too, is recognizing the pushback when you question that. Yeah. When you question that, and I'm legitimately, I was legitimately wanting to know what was going on because I've actually been to Asbury uh -huh. and, and I've read about the one in 1976. Yeah, and I recognized that there were some things that were going on, and trying to really parse it out. But there was there's so many there's so much emotionalism in that. But the minute you question, the pushback on that is is how dare you question? It's it's just like the word of faith movement. It's just like that. It's how dare you question? If you can't stand up to questioning, you have no doctrine. Yeah. And it was evident because they couldn't. But what they did is they got a gall of publicity for their school. Yeah. Did you have something, brother? I was just going to close with this word of God as well. If you're reading 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12, it's right after the son who was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And Paul's saying, we don't have anything to do with judging those outside the church. We are to hold each other accountable yep. in God's church. That's calling each other out. And if you hear, don't judge me, we're not judging. We're just telling you what God's word says. Absolutely. So that group of PK, if they, if someone called them out on the carpet and they left, well, they really were in God's church. So we just let them go and pray for them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. And I'll close with this. I don't want to say that God didn't ever speak to anybody's heart or do a change in their heart having gone to those conferences or gone to a Billy Graham crusade or gone to the Asbury revival or whatever. I'm not saying that because God can work in any way that he chooses to do so. 
but he's not going to work in a way that is outside of his word. Amen? Thank you for listening and being attentive. I pray that you'll have a blessed week. And again, if you have any questions, uh, I really don't know where the time went to tonight. Um, But if you have any questions, feel free to ask. And um, we'll see you again soon. Every blessing.